Inside the Adventure Season 1, Episode 17, with Andrew Cease. If you've ever been afraid to step outside your comfort zone, then you're in the right place. Inside the Adventure features incredible athletes and everyday people sharing their epic stories of pushing life to its limits. Get ready to be inspired, face your fears, and take action with your host, Marshall Mosier. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Inside the Adventure. This is your host, Marshall Mosier, and I'm so excited to have an awesome guest on the show with us today, Andrew Cease, the youngest person to circumnavigate the globe on foot with some really incredible stories that he'll tell you later. Thanks so much for joining us today, Andrew. How's it going? It's going well. I'm, I'm doing well. Thanks. Awesome. Cool. Well, hey, it's it's really great to have you on the show. You've got some really incredible, really epic stories that I can't wait for you to share today. But to give everyone out there listening a better sense for who our guest is today, uh, along with being the youngest person to circumnavigate the globe on foot, Andrew has also biked from Minnesota, uh, his home state, to the southernmost uh, the southernmost tip of South America in the summer of 2009, and in September of 2011. Andrew canoed the entire Mississippi River, finishing in December of the same year. And then in May of 2012, Andrew began his epic trek of walking around the entire planet by actually sinking in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean after hitting an injured sperm whale and being rescued by a German cargo ship that transported him the rest of the way to Italy uh, and that was all after losing all of his belongings other than his violin. I can't Sir. wait for you to tell that story more. Yeah. But I guess when people, you know, ask that hypothetical question of like, if you're stranded on a sinking ship and you can only bring one thing with you, what would it be? You probably have a, a good relevant answer to that, right? Yeah, it would be the violin. Absolutely. Without a doubt. You know, it's the only, only thing I really need, you know, some is the violin because then I can get, get some money, play it on the street, make some friends. And yeah, I would, you know, don't really, don't, you don't need clothes. You don't need food necessarily, but the violin, they'll get you clothes and get you food, get you everything you need, friends. That's so true. And I, I can't wait for you to tell that story a little bit more into detail. But before we jump into uh, a little bit more of your trek walking across the world, I'd love to get started with talking a little bit more about your childhood and what inspired you Um to go on these trips and and what inspired you to get the sense of adventure that you have right now? Uh, well, I didn't I didn't really uh, expect to be doing this. That I mean, when I was a child, I didn't. I mean, my my plan was to become a shepherd in the in the Patagonia. That was my dream. Um, you know, in high school, and I, I was I talked about that. You know, from the beginning of high school till the end, pretty much, is that I wanted to bicycle down to. South America, Argentina, and then work as a shepherd and, and get out of the U.S. and not, you know, not be part of any wars and kind of live simply. And where did that dream uh, come from? How old were you? I had another. I had another friend. I had another friend, like probably when I was like ten or twelve, that when people were going around like saying what they wanted to do when they grow up, he, uh, you know, everyone's saying that you know the standard athlete or I don't know, like boxer or something like that rapper i don't know what and uh this guy's like oh i want to be a shepherd you know and i thought that sounds really really cool 
actually, and that's not a profession that you hear people uh, thinking about very often in right. Minnesota. So, so yeah, you know, I just, I guess it triggered some, some, uh, my wild imagination and the thought, you know, it kind of sounds like a great way to live. So, um, from that point on, I kind of thought, you know, I gotta, you know, do that. That'll be well, stress-free and, uh, I won't be harming the, the world as much. I'll kind of be living, living a better life, I guess. But in the end, I, you know, didn't, didn't end up doing that kind of got addicted to the adventure after that you know but pre you know pre this stuff i was you know exploring caves in minnesota with my friends you know we'd always sneak into abandoned buildings a lot of urban explorations but uh my my family is not they're not into camping at all or anything like what i'm into really it's kind of i felt i i felt pretty far from the tree so how did you find ways to get into those types of activities and adventures without having your family introduce it? Was it friends that you met? Did you go out? Yeah, it was take it on your through own? friends. Yep, through friends. I had uh, one of my best friends. He was he was pretty crazy. His brother actually was the one that I think like was the original urban explorer kind of and going in caves by the river, the Mississippi River. and Because um, there's a lot of caves in the Twin Cities that were built for the, the – smuggling alcohol up to homes and stuff during the prohibition it's a lot of sandstone so it was really easy to build caves and obviously people die in them too doing stupid stuff like we were doing but we luckily we didn't and you know so yeah we just i i was it was my friends that they were they were into that um and i was just i was into the adrenaline rush and you know i i enjoyed that stuff more than drinking and partying on the weekend honestly it was a lot more you came out with a lot better stories. So while you didn't end up going and actually being a shepherd, I definitely say you're a different form of shepherd, almost like a shepherd of amazing stories from all the <laughs> incredible things you've done. Um, yeah. And the first of which uh, was really the first big trip um, that you did was biking from Minnesota to South America. So how did you go from having that dream of being a shepherd to actually getting started on such a, a long, uh, noteworthy bike ride all the way to the tip of South America? Well, right after high school, I, uh, I wanted to learn Spanish. I wanted to do this trip, but I was, I was scared to go down there on bicycle. I didn't know what the roads were going to be like. I didn't, you know, I didn't speak Spanish very well. I just had, you know, rudimentary skills from, what I learned in high school, which is, you know, same thing everyone learns in high school, which is essentially nothing. Um, and so I, I wanted to learn Spanish. So I, after high school, when I was 18, I flew down to Venezuela with a couple of friends and we volunteered there for four months and, you know, taught English, like cooked food at some soup kitchen, orphanage place. Um, I had a free place to stay, like sometimes mostly free food. We would sell hot dogs on the street, paint houses, um, and so I learned Spanish there and then kind of saw Latin America. And then from there I decided, you know, if I, I, I should probably try a bus and hitchhike and sail all the way from there to Mexico. And if I couldn't do that by busing and hitchhiking, then, you know, how the hell am I going to be able to do it biking? So it was kind of like the test run and I bust hitchhike, you know, from when I was like 18, 19, um, for three months until I got to Mexico from Venezuela to Mexico. And, uh, and then and on that trip, I met a few other cyclists 
who were cycling from U.S. down through Central America, and so kind of picked their brains, and it seemed like it was possible. So then I went back home, worked at a bike shop, learned how to fix bikes, bought a cheap bike um, with the discount that I got from there, and then and then the the longest I had ever biked before that was just in. I never even biked out of the state of Minnesota. Um, I just biked up to Duluth and back from the Twin Cities with a couple other friends when we were in high school. And, uh, and I found out from that trip, you know, and you, you need to have a good seat because my, otherwise it feels like a dull blade, like going up your butt all day. Um, so, so yeah, got a good seat and a good, decent bicycle. And then I just, you know, I said goodbye to the family friends. I'm going to bike down to Argentina and I don't think most people honestly thought I was going to make it, but but people knew I was had been talking about it for a long time, and I was gonna definitely try. And uh, you know, my grandma said, "Oh, don't be don't be ashamed to come back home for Thanksgiving," you know. <laughs> and so I just kept, but I just kept going. You know, it took less than a month to go from Twin Cities down to the Mexican Texas border, and then so I felt like I was cruising. I was going like 100 miles a day, and and I kept going all the way through Mexico in a couple of weeks, through Central America in a couple more weeks. I, you know, so I went from Minnesota to Columbia in two months. Yeah, I felt like I was flying, making better progress than I thought I was going to be making. And then, yeah, I just kept, kept going, you know, it was great. What did your family think of the trip? What was their reaction when you first told them? And what was their, re- their reaction when, uh, you know, when you actually made it all the way to the end? Well, you know, they, they were reluctantly supportive. They, they wanted me to be happy. They, they knew that this is something I had wanted to do and they're not really going to be able to talk me out of it. Cause you know, I'm an adult and I was eight, I was 19 when I left so you're going at, on, the, on the bicycle trip. So yeah, I, I, I was, I'm pretty stubborn, but you know, there was, it was a little hard for them cause that was, you know, second gap year, right? I already had a gap year and they're kind of hoping I'll get through the gap year, uh, you know, sort of, or the, the, the drive to, to get away from school would be kind of petering out and I would want to get back to school at that point. But they, when they found out, you know, I wasn't ready yet. So I don't know. I don't think, yeah, it, it was, it was, it was hard for them yeah, a little bit, but you know, I kept in touch with email and it's easier these days than it used to be. So with that, so they were surprised. Were- they, they were surprised. I think that I made it, I, but proud of me. Well, it's it's an incredible trip, and I I'm sure they were very proud of you when you finally made it to the end. Yeah, um, I mean, and then I I, I I stayed there for for a while and worked, and then I I just biked home. So they were like when I got home, that was kind of a, I always remember that. So you actually biking. biked all the way back from there as well. Yeah, yeah, I biked home too. Oh wow. Yeah, biked through Brazil on the way back home. That's amazing. <laughs> What was it like going through the borders of different countries uh, on a bike? Uh, did you ever have problems with border control or going through different types of um, com- uh, different country zones and everything? It was easy. You know, with the American passport, it's pretty easy on, on that trip. You know, I, there was like, you need a visa to get in Bolivia. It was like $100. And you could, all you do is pay for it. You don't even have to go to the embassy. You can just pay for it at the border. But for me at that time, hundred bucks was just way too much money to spend on a visa. Yeah. So I, I, I didn't go to Bolivia because of that. I didn't go to Paraguay because of that. It was like $50 visa. So, so yeah, but I just stayed in the every, everywhere else where it was basically free and 
know, it's pretty, it's really easy. You just, you know, stamp in, stamp out. And if you're on a bicycle, they don't charge you like they do. And if you, if you are arrive on airplane, sometimes they'll give you like an airport tax and stuff like that. But it's actually, right, get expensive. it's pretty cheap on the, on the bicycle, you know? Well, hey, that works out even well. We're, uh, were yeah. you pulling along a trailer or did you have all your gear in a backpack or in bags attached to your bike? I had some panniers. Yeah. Front and back bike bags. And then I had that sleeping bag on the back too, yeah. Nice. And you would just camp along the way? Yeah, yeah, I just camped on the side of the road. You know, I didn't hardly use couch surfing at all or warm showers. It was it was uh those websites. I mean it was and I only stayed in two hostels the whole way from here to Argentina. So so I spent, you know, I spent, you know, fifteen dollars on sleeping accommodation from here to Argentina. Like the total it was like under a thousand dollar trip that one from five and a half months it's not a bad uh bad rate yeah. to, to go on a trip like that yeah it was really i was pretty happy with that pretty did you ever run into any types of problems on the road whether it's mechanic problems like flat tires or whether it's uh you know problems with theft or dealing with people that might not have had your best intentions in mind um did you ever there was see anything like that there were definitely yeah there were people that I mean, one of the first things you learn in Latin America, the first words you learn is like, like the word robot or like to steal because they always ask you, have they like, <laughs> like how, how many times have they robbed you or like they'll ask you, have they robbed you yet? You know, because really? everyone expects, oh yeah, like the, or, and the, and then the other thing you learn is like, te maten por dos mangos. It's like, they'll kill you for two mangos. They'll kill you for nothing. Like there's nothing they say all the time, all throughout Latin America. So it's like in danger, you know, the word like peligroso. So you learn those words like really quickly because they just, they use them all the time because they assume, you know, and it's true. Like if you're down there six to six months to a year, you know, I, I would say your chances of getting robbed are like 90%. You know, I hardly know anyone that's been there for over a year that hasn't gotten robbed. It, so did you usually it, like, I, I amazingly on the whole way down, I did not get robbed. Um, and then on the way back, I did, I was on the Amazon river on a boat, like up the Amazon, um, in, in Brazil and, uh, sleeping on a hammock and someone stole my camera that someone, it wasn't even my camera, camera someone else had given me and they stole that. But I never, you know, that was the worst that happened. So it really wasn't that it was way less than most people get, you know? Right. So you really made um, it out. Pretty good. I feel like I, yeah, I feel like I did really well. Yeah, I made it out really well. Didn't, right, you got lucky. Didn't, didn't get wow. assaulted. Yeah. What did you, what did you feel like? What was going through your mind um, when so many of the locals were constantly asking, not you know if you got robbed, but like when are you going to get robbed? Like this is going to happen. Yeah. Were you, were you inevitable? Worried? Right. Uh, a little bit, but not too much because I know. I mean, I had lived in Venezuela before, and Venezuela is one of the most dangerous countries in the world. You know, Caracas has got the highest homicide rate in the world. Um, so, you know, it's just, it's more, it's worse than a war zone. You know, there's more homicides there than Syria on some days. Wow. Um, so, so yeah, so I, I, I was used to it, you know, and I know, I, I knew from that trip that people are, they are, they, they're scared for you. But at the same time, you know, there's still millions and millions of people that live there their daily lives there and it's not like you're gonna die or you're gonna you know shit exactly. necessarily going to happen there's not a hundred percent chance it's gonna happen but there's a good chance that it'll happen so I, I just i mean i try to just 
not think about it too much. Stay positive, look poor, you know, and in general, if you're on the bicycle, you don't get messed with as much because you, you just don't have, you know, you don't have money and you have, when people think like, oh, you're, you know, you're white, you must be a millionaire. It's like, well, not always, you know, that's not the case with me. And, uh, and, and at least you have like, you're on a bicycle, you know, it's like, so it's something that they could do too, you know, like almost anyone could have enough money to buy a bicycle. So, right. Do you think uh, one of the keys is to not look like you really have a lot to steal, like not have a nice Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah, for sure. You know, I didn't have a phone. Like, I didn't have a camera on the way down. I didn't have a phone. I didn't have a GPS. So I didn't have anything besides, like, paper maps. And, you know, I looked. I tried to look like no, nothing special, basically. Right. So if someone tried to rob you, just be like, I, I don't have anything. <laughs> yeah. And it was, and it's essentially true. Like, I, I didn't have, you know, you know, so I wasn't just like, I wasn't lying. I really didn't have much. You know, I had my bicycle. Right. I had less than a lot of, you know, I would say most people down there, like, had more than I did and like if they had a house you know then already boom they got more than I do right my my house is my tent well I, I guess that's the the best safety measure is just not have anything worth stealing right yeah 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 <laughs> that's not crazy that well that hey with do. with that being your first large trip you did um do you think the experiences and the memories you had throughout your travels on that trip helped spark the next trip, which was canoeing yeah. across the Mississippi. Yeah, definitely. I, I fell in, I fell in love with those adventures and seeing new places and human powered transport on that trip. And, you know, I, I, I kind of, yeah, I wanted to see more, I wanted to do more traveling. I, and, and I also knew I kind of, I, I had a jump on so like the rest of, the world a lot more most other people in terms i mean there's not i never met anyone who was in the 19 20 any like anywhere close to my age that was doing that by themselves you know so i felt like okay i'm kind of like you know, this is doing something a little bit more unique and maybe maybe i maybe i maybe i can do something more with this i don't know like i love it so I just keep going and and you know the mississippi was next because you know it's been a dream when, since i was a kid as well you know and not quite as um, you know, it wasn't quite as much of a dream as the shepherding and biking down to Argentina was, but it was one of those things where my friends and I would go down the river all the time to, you know, shoot golf balls into it or drink or just hang out, skip stones. And, and, uh, yeah, we'd always talk about Huck Finn and, and what, you know, if it would be possible if we could just, you know, throw a canoe in the water, or a raft and float down to the New Orleans and, so finally, I got back on the bike, and I thought, now's the time. If I don't do it now, I might not ever do it. So, so I just bought a canoe and put my bicycle bags basically just into a backpack, and then started canoeing. So, could I you fall. use the same the same type of travel mindset as you did on your first trip? Just yeah. scratch yeah, the yeah. bike and add the canoe, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it was very similar, you know, in a lot of ways. That you're sleeping in a new place every night, camping out in the tent every night. Um, it was better in some ways because the camping is a lot easier on the river. And you're in the U.S. the whole time, so I guess you don't you're have to You're in the U.S. the whole time, stolen. so it's, yeah, exactly. It's a little bit safer, significantly safer. Um, everyone speaks English. You just, it's, it is way easier. It's not, I mean, there's a lot of people that can do the Mississippi, so, which we found out, you know, when, when I did it. I did that with another couple friends, so that was fun too, just to have more company. 
Um, and so basically our goal for that trip was just to do it for free. Like we, we dumpstered over the whole way. didn't spend any money at all. That was, that was kind of the, the intention behind the trip was to see if it would be possible to continue the whole Mississippi river without spending any money. So did that's what ever, we did. Um, did you ever meet people along the way that really liked the story of what you're doing and just kind of helped out by giving you supplies or, um, uh, no, no. I mean, well, yeah, I mean, we wouldn't tell, like, we wouldn't tell people, like, hey, we're trying to do this for free by dumpster diving because there's so many people that are put off by that, like, are scared, like, oh, you eat from the trash, you know? So we would not advertise that um, unless we were very confident that the person was, would be okay with that and wouldn't judge us or, like, hate us or something <laughs> like that. Um, so, but some people, yeah, occasionally, you know, I met some dude on the river who called himself Richie Rich. He's you know old single guy, no kids, but you know worked his whole life uh, union in the like coal, not coal mines or like iron mines or something like that. And so anyway, he saved up a bunch of money and he was like, "Hey, I'm you know happy that he threw me a hundred bucks on the river. He was on his boat on the river too, and he said, "Oh, that's so cool. I'm happy to help. You know, he just gave me a hundred bucks right there." Um, I mean, there was a couple other people um, that did that same thing, um, which is all it was just amazing. You know, I had a huge help, obviously. To supplement the stuff, you know, because we didn't find everything we needed in the dumpster. Sometimes there's stuff that you can't that you that you can't find there. It's nice to buy it. Right? Would you like like alcohol? Find, uh, like, like alcohol? <laughs> no one throws away alcohol, so you can't find that in the dumpster. I mean, we have, we have. <laughs> My buddy found a 24 pack of Coors at one point. Really? Wow! No joke. Yeah. Who throws away a 24 pack? I don't know. I had a dented can or something. Wow. They'll throw away anything. I'm telling you, Marsha. It was an eye. It was an eye opener for me. I I always thought that uh, I didn't think it was possible to do that. I thought it'd be disgusting, but it's really, right. um, you know, it's kind of dis- it's more disgusting what's thrown away than what's actually, There's, you know, you know, it's, it's disgusting that they throw away such good stuff. That's what's right. disgusting. Right, that they can really put to use in so many. So many oh things. yeah, we have such a it's, you know a, a hunger problem people. in the world. Yeah. Yeah, there's so yeah in the world and even in the U.S. There's right. people that are just undernourished. You know, they're eating crap. You know, they're not getting all the vitamins and nutrients because all they're eating is fast food. Um, and so yeah. Anyway, so that was kind of a fun goal for the the Mississippi. And I of course played violin along the way too. And you know, had a good time. Oktoberfest in La Crosse, Wisconsin was that was a good money making day. Or so. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And so yeah, we just yeah we made it. In three months or so. Did you end up being able to do it all for free? Like your initial goal? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then in the end, sold the canoe for for uh, my money back and a little bit more. And uh, and then luckily just met someone down there. Met a woman down there who was from Minnesota. And she ended up having to go back for Christmas. So she actually just gave me a ride home too. So it's pretty sweet. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it's amazing yeah. the the things that people will do for you when you just random people you meet along the trip that oh, yeah. really help yeah. you out in so many awesome ways. Yeah, it happened, it happened time and time again. Yeah, there was this awesome family. One, it, one story I always love to tell to you about that trip. We got we pulled up to a house in oh, I forget the name of the town, small town in Mississippi, and. And the family's name was like the Clevelands, I believe, or so. Or no, Nan Nan Sanders was the was the grandma. And um, anyway, we pulled up to this house, very large house on the river, because we didn't know where the city was off the river, and we needed some water. And so we pulled up to this house, and this big truck pulled down, like saw us coming in, I guess, and like came down to meet us. 
and this guy got out and this old lady and and he said, you know, what's going on? We said, hey, we're just, I was wondering if we could get some water. At, we're canoeing the river. And he said, yeah, come on in. And so he, like, invited us into this house, cute, you know, mansion, and very nice. You know, we're just, we just smell like crap. We look like crap. And he had, you know, 50 taxidermy bucks, like, on his wall. And you know, it was the biggest flat screen TV I've ever seen. And, you know, beer fridge and, like, a normal fridge. And so he's just... Just like, hey, help yourself. Like, take a shower. There's two showers upstairs. Like, use those. Um, there's food in the fridge. There's beer in the fridge. Help yourselves. Uh, the keys to the truck are in the truck. You can use that if you need to go into town. And then, and he's like, and hey, we're just going to leave. So, make yourselves at home. Wow. And we like, look, yeah, we're like, what? What? <laughs> like, and he, yeah, he and his family just drove away, left us to this, their mansion with the, with the truck. So we were like, all right, you know, we took the truck, we drove into the town, we got our supplies, drove back, and uh, by the time we got back, they they had returned also, and they prepared us some like some southern food with like uh, this like cream pie, stuff, like peach cobbler stuff. It was so good. It was yeah, so it was just kind of an incredible. Man, I just couldn't believe they just met us, and two seconds later, they gave us the truck man, and their whole house. Yeah, it was pretty sweet. Yeah, it's yeah. incredible for someone Sanders. that they've never met before to really open up and be so hospitable to do something like that. Yeah, we, uh, yeah that was awesome. As they said, yeah. they were like, "Well, I don't think you would like ditch all your, you know, ditch all your canoes." And you know, they're like, "Yeah, you're right. You know, we we wouldn't like that's not gonna, true." Yeah, but you, you but but most even that. even so, most people wouldn't be that trusting, you know. And they exactly. were, so they were, and it really, you know, I, it encourages me to be more trusting too when I'm hosting people and you know, try to give them the key and, you know, cause it makes it so much easier. Exactly. Every, well, I, yeah. I feel like, I feel like traveling and having experiences like what you're doing, um, really helps to kind of open up your eyes to, to be more hospitable. Like, like that guy was, I'm sure he's had some incredible experiences and an amazing story as well. That probably, he probably had the same thing happen to him maybe at one point as well. And that's why he's passing it on to you. And in the future, you'll probably really? do the same thing. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I definitely have been trying to trying to pass it on as much as much as possible this summer. Anyone that comes by, that's an amazing story. Well, hey, we gotta track down that guy and send him this podcast. I'm sure he'd appreciate. Yeah, it. <laughs> the Sanders. Yeah, yeah look up. Thanks, yeah, Mr. Sanders. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Mr. Sanders and Nan awesome. Sanders. Exactly. Yeah. Well, hey, I know when you finally got back from that trip. Uh, you know, it was. December of the same year you left, you know, September of 2011. And less than half a year later in May, you actually embarked on your next uh, incredible trip, which turned out to be the longest and, um, you know, most widely known, your, your trip of walking across the world. So when you got back from your trip down the Mississippi, what sparked the idea for actually walking on foot across the world? And, and what was the inspiration to to embark on your third adventure after getting back from um, two of the coolest stories I've ever heard, and going out uh, third. Well, the uh, during the Mississippi River trip, I had been, you know, I, it was my time to think about what what I would do after that. You know, I was paddling, and I'll, you know, you let your mind wander and think about what's next. And so, so I was thinking about it, and 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 on the bicycle trip, I was hosted by this guy who. In Texas, in Brownsville, Texas, he hosted me. His name was Will, and he was just finishing up a book about a guy uh, who walked. You know, he was a Minnesotan, the first 
person to ever walk around the world is in Minnesotan also. And so I got down on a bicycle there and, and he's like, Oh no way, you're a Minnesotan. This guy walked around the world is in Minnesotan and that was really the first time I'd ever heard of anyone walking around the world. And this guy did it in the seventies with his brother and his brother was killed. Um and he was shot in Afghanistan and so so that was all I knew. I knew it was possible. I knew these other Minnesotans had done it. And um, I actually never have read the book, um, but I thought, or any book for, any, for that matter of anyone that walked around the world, but I, I was just, I thought, you know, I could do this um, and I got to, you know, keep the Minnesota adventure tradition alive. And, and so, uh, and then I knew I, it wasn't scary. It wasn't very intimidating. It wasn't as challenging. So I thought, if I want to be a professional adventurer, you gotta, you gotta do something that, that, uh, that I haven't done before, and that hopefully no, uh, that not as many people have done. You know, something a little bit more difficult, a little more challenging. Uh, it's the simplest form of transport, and so there's just a lot of reasons I, I was, I was just enticed by. It. it just sounds cool too, walking around the world. Did you know at the time that if you'd completed that, you would actually be the youngest person to walk across the world as well? I mean. Yeah, I had. I thought. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of a kind of a goal. Yeah, I guess it would be like it's it's a plus. You know, it's a little bit, a little bit cool, but uh, but it's not. You know, it's not the main reason. Right. Yeah, you just. I mean, the main the main thing is just to do it and see the people and and feel what you feel like getting beaten by the weather and the and the rain and the cold and and um. You know, if I happen to be young doing it, that's great. If you're older doing it, that's good too. I think it's, yeah, I mean, the experiences are the most important. Absolutely. So after just getting back from two really incredible trips and kind of revisiting what you said about your family earlier, how they kind of were hoping that, you know, you would take this gap year and then, you know, go off and do something maybe more traditional. What was their reaction when you told them that actually, you know, I'm going to embark on this even bigger trip of walking around the world? They had that was a tough that was a tough one for them. They kind of broke down. It was a bit of an intervention. Um, they thought I was just addicted uh, to traveling, this adventure stuff. And I, you know, I feel like I, I do love it. I'm, I enjoy it a lot, but I, I hated when they used the word addicted because it was because you know that's just that's negative connotation. Like it's a pro- problem, you know. Right. Um, and I don't. I, hurting anyone you know i thought there's just so many other things out there in the world that are actually that are real problems like, like real jobs that people do that people get paid millions of dollars to just exploit other people or ruin other people's lives and or countries resources and stuff like that and it's like you know like at least i'm not doing that exactly. um and and I, so yeah i was i was upset like they were upset it was hard for it was hard for everyone because I knew you know at the, at the very minimum if I left it would be years before I saw him again, and so yeah there was some tears you know it was not easy, and I had just been gone for such a long time too you know essentially since I graduated high school I wasn't I've been home for a few months you know right. most of the time I was gone, so and I you know so it was just it was a lot of stress at the beginning of that trip it was definitely a lot of stress. Were they worried that you might not come back? I think so. You know, I was worried about that too. Everyone was worried. I, w- I thought about getting life insurance <laughs> because, yeah, I mean, fifty percent of the Minnesotans that tried it died. Right. You know, yeah. and I did. I do know. You know, there's there's a fair amount of 
there's not many people that walk like really long distances, but I have heard of other stories of people that have done it that they get hit by cars, you know, they get they get robbed, they get killed. And it seems like there's it's it's more dangerous than than biking because you're such an easy target. You're not moving fast at all. So everyone knows where you are and anyone can come up to you and and harass you and you, there's really no escape. Uh, right. And if you're you know you just it's just you know the world is not made to be walked around anymore it's it's made to be driven around so you're kind of fighting that current of motors so what was the thing that helped you kind of get past the fear of of maybe not making it back and the fear of the fact that half of the people who have attempted this have passed away. What was the thing that actually got maybe you? Not half, maybe not half the total attempts, but half the Minnesotan attempts. Ah, as Minnesota, far as right. Yeah. Still, though, what kind of pushed you past the fear of wondering for the worst and actually taking a step? Uh, I mean, my word, I, I try to try to keep my word, you know, so I said I was going to do it, and I knew there was going to be a lot of benefits to my life and other people's lives if I if I did complete it, so... Or I mean, I that's how I expected, and um, so I, you know, I thought, you know, I'd gone, I'd done a lot of thinking on it for months while I was canoeing the river, and even after that, planning it out, looking it up, all the logistics online, and um, so yeah, I thought, you know, it's it's got to be done. Like if I, it will be really hard, but maybe if I did that then a couple of other doors would open up for me and maybe I could be a professional adventurer or, you know, just, uh, I don't know, you meet the right person during that trip or, you know, something something else comes up and I don't know. It just seemed like, my, so my word, you know, I said I was going to do it. I thought about it. And so I had, you know, I had to do it. It wasn't, that was how I did it. It was just, you know, pretty much if I, if I say I'm going to do it with, uh, with enough conviction, there's no going back. No and, turning back from there. Absolutely. Yeah, you gotta you gotta do it. <laughs> gotta do it. You know, otherwise you gotta uh, stop talking. Exactly. Well, hey, talking about kind of the risks of of doing the trip brings me to one of the the first things I want to focus on, which I'm sure you uh, you've talked about the story a million times, um, and I would love to share with our guests uh, and for everyone out there listening. Andrew has written an incredible blog. Uh, and journal of all of his experiences at andrewsgreatadventure.com, which actually has an interactive map, which you can see different blog journal postings in different places actually on a map. And I would love to read out two of your postings, Andrew, that you have from when you first set sail with the the whale story, if that's okay with you. Hit it. Awesome. And just to get a frame of reference, this was around six days after setting sail, right? Yeah, this was probably six days after setting. Uh, or, yeah, six days from the U.S. to Bermuda, and then from Bermuda it was another three days before the accident. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll go ahead and, and read out your post because I think you do a fantastic job of writing it out. Thanks. I left Bermuda in the open ocean. It's the evening and seas are relatively calm with a perfect blue sky and nothing but water in sight. Marta and I are standing in the cockpit looking around on the horizon and just keeping a watch for ships. And out of nowhere comes this huge bang. And all of a sudden, there's a huge collision that shakes the boat. At the time, we thought we hit a lost shipping container from a cargo ship. 
Then about 15 feet from us, a sperm whale surfaces from the water with blood running down its back, and we knew we hit a whale that was most likely sleeping or sick. Juiced, the captain, ran to the bow of the boat and saw a large crack in the hull of the boat, and he also saw fiberglass falling off the hull with water coming into the boat. Juiced went down to the inside of the bow and saw that the water compartment was full of water, and we started bailing. Then we tried to put an extra sail around the bow of the boat to band-aid the hull, but water continued to flow in. Juiced was very worried because he did not know the extent of the damage to the hull, and if the keel was also cracked and possibly going to break, which would instantly capsize the boat. So we turned back towards Bermuda because we knew it was foolish to attempt to arrive uh, still weeks away by sail at our final destination. Uh, Juiced, who's the captain, by the way, made the mayday call and called the Dutch Coast Guards, who then radioed Virginia uh, in the United States. We also radio contacted Bermuda, who contacted ships in the area that the sailing vessel was taking on water. We had an electric pump working, and this allowed us to empty the water from the bow of the boat, but the water continued to come in through several massive cracks on both sides of the hull. And this is, just to give everyone reference, six days out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, the Bermuda. I was like, nine days, nine days. Nine days, yeah. yeah. <laughs> in the middle of nowhere, right when you first started your journey. So what was going through your head at this point, Andrew? Uh, I was, yeah, I was scared. I mean, it was it was a lot of adrenaline because, yeah, I'm not, I'm not a water person, and I knew I wasn't going to swim to shore, so... I was I was scared, you know, that we were gonna end up in a little life raft, and yeah, it it was, it was getting to be dark too. It happened right before sunset, so by the time we got rescued by the cargo ship, it was it was nighttime. It's pitch black, and uh, luckily there weren't a ton of waves. Was, I mean, we're moving obviously, but it was it was relatively calm. It was a lot calmer than it had been in some some of the previous sailing days. So what so, was this cargo ship and how did it get to you? Cargo ship was some German cargo ship and it was just the, it was the closest one in the area and they, they, they came, it took them two hours. So it was really quick. They, they arrived and they radioed us and asked what we needed. If we needed a uh, abandoned ship, if we needed somehow to get some other assistance in any other way, they came to assist, you know? And so they, we said, you know, like we kind of, voted on what people wanted to do and and the pump broke also i should say so when the pump broke that was that was basically when yost made the final call and said you know we'll we got it we'll we'll abandon ship because the three-day sail back to bermuda seemed very uh like you know just iffy right dangerous and maybe not a smart idea with a with a hole in your boat not knowing the extent of the damage underneath the boat so so we just uh, we we motored up to the cargo ship. They dropped a huge ladder, like a treehouse ladder, on the side, and and one by one we all we all got off. I was the youngest, so they they made me go first. And the the Mar- Martha, the Italian, she was uh, she was on the boat. She was on the sailboat also, and she was very adamant about not being the first one to abandon ship because it was right after the Costa Concordia accident. Oh, really? So she was yeah. couldn't do that. Yeah, she so, did not want to abandon ship. By the way, to get a better reference um, for kind of how you ended on this ship, what's the ship? Who are these people you're with, and how did you get there? Uh, on the sailboat? Yeah. 
Sailboat, I, I found him on findcrew.com uh, website, and it was just happened to be I had to get really lucky that this this guy Yost uh, from the Netherlands wanted he, he was he had already sailed across the ocean once and he was going to sail back home to the to Holland and um, you need some helpers and so with my very very limited sailing experience uh, he decided to you know he would let me on because I was pretty you know I was confident and I was you know I was excited uh, to help with whatever and so yeah I think he was I don't know, he just felt my enthusiasm or something. He was, he he gave me like probably a little bit more credit than I deserved for, uh, for sailing like once before. I gotten seasick, you know, once before, and that was, that was actually like one of the most important things to him was just that I knew how bad it is to get seasick, so I wouldn't be surprised by the torture of being seasick on the, in the middle of the ocean, you know, that would, right. which makes sense because that really is the is one of the worst feelings you can ever have is just that constant nausea. Throwing up, throwing up, throwing up for days on end. You know, it's it's brutal. Um, but and so I'm, yeah, I'm not, you know, I'm not a water person, like I said. But but I found these guys on findacrew.com and I uh, wanted, awesome. you know, wanted wanted to get across the ocean that way. The cargo ship just, yeah, they just happen to be the closest one in the area. And if you're into uh, kind of, uh, you know, like I don't know, signs or something like that. It was the the other sailboat that was closest to rescuing us was called Halo, so that uh, oh, wow. that was kind of <laughs> yeah, so kind of funny that they <laughs> for us also. That's amazing. Well, Captain Yo sounds like an amazing person. You actually have another uh, journal entry from right after the last one that I read that I'd love to uh, read as well sure. to give people kind of the next step, sure. um, yeah, uh, vision in their head. So yeah. at the time that there were these massive cracks in the hull, water was flowing in, and the cargo ship had just arrived. Captain Yost asked the cargo ship how much time he had to make the decision of whether or not to stay on the boat. Of course, Yost wanted to save the boat. I mean, the boat was almost like his own child, but he didn't want to lose any lives. Um, and he didn't know how much worse the cracks in the boat would become. And the weather outlook from where we were to Bermuda was not promising. So by the time night came, it was completely dark, which when you think about jumping into a life raft at night in the middle of the ocean, it kind of reminds me of something like suicide. The pump <laughs> that had kept the water compartment free of water all of a sudden broke. So Yost made the call that we would leave the sailboat named the Outer Limits. By, by this time, the cargo ship, the ER Melbourne, was waiting for us in the darkness. It was a very eerie feeling to see this massive, nearly 800-foot-long ship with hundreds of lights sitting very still in the middle of the ocean waiting for us. The waves bounced us around in our little boat like we were nothing. Yost monitored around the waves towards the ER Melbourne, which had gone hours out of their way to save us, spending nearly $10,000 in fuel to reach our boat. The ER Melbourne literally traveled full speed, 22 knots, to respond to our mayday call. Normally, the ship would have cruised at about 15 knots per hour. As the waves crashed, we received ropes thrown down to us from the ship, and we tied them to our boat as the ferocious waves smashed our small sinking ship against the iron cargo ship. I actually climbed the rope treehouse style that went up 30 feet to another steel foldable ladder where the chief officer of the ER Melbourne was waiting for me. 
one of the two one of the two inch thick ropes had snapped and gotten tangled in our outer limits motor and made disembarking even more difficult. Finally, we situated ourselves into the ER Melbourne and met the captain of the ship. We left the outer limits sailing boat to the sea with all of my stuff on it, except for the clothes I was wearing, my violin, and the maps I had with me. So as you were on this massive boat that was multiple hundreds, if not thousands of times bigger than the boat you were on after going through this experience with the only thing you had left was your violin and your maps. And what was going through your mind at that point? Were you just happy that you were alive, not on a lifeboat in the middle of the ocean? What were those feelings? Yeah. Yeah, I was happy that I was not on a lifeboat in the middle of the ocean, but I was also just stunned. You know, we were all stunned. Couldn't, couldn't believe what just happened you know you hit a freaking whale in the middle of the ocean and sank our sailboat you know it's just the stuff that never happened you know it's like a it's a a joke you know it's something that people joke about like in italian they joke like there's like a thing in the whale's butt is like good luck it's like break a leg they say that instead of like break a leg when you go on stage like in culo da palena and uh and that's and so like they say that you know in, in the whale's butt and then you know we hit a we hit the whale in the middle of the ocean it was like and it was not good luck you know yeah. yeah it was yeah so we got you know we got on that cargo ship and, and all four of us were just we sat with the bottle the, the captain of the cargo ship gave us a bottle of Bacardi you know handed it to the captain Yost and he said I think you're gonna need this you know and wow. we sat the four of us around a table in one of the rooms that they had given us to sleep in. And we just did, I mean, we hardly said anything just stunned. And, uh, yeah, couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe it. All of us, you know, an hour, two hours before we were on the sailboat, three, you know, three or four hours before that, we, everything was great. And then all of a sudden, boom, you know, everything's gone except the violin, totally different destination. I mean, just so much changed so quickly. That no one expected, you know, it was, it was crazy. So with, with all you had left being your violin and the new destination being Italy, tell us what you did to make money to buy back all the gear you had lost on the ship once you got there. Then when I got there, I uh, started playing violin in the street. Eventually got picked up to play in a restaurant. So they were paying me, you know, like, some decent money to play violin in the restaurant. And then I was also like, happened to be, I was really lucky that Marta, one of the girls on the sailboat, her family was from Italy. She's Italian, of course. And so she hosted, uh, she hosted me at her house for over a month. And that helped out a ton too. So I had, you know, I had a free place to stay. Um, they're giving me, you know, free pasta, of course. And, and then her cousin actually ran a summer camp for kids where, where he had like a tennis teacher or he needed a tennis teacher. And I had been a tennis teacher in Minnesota. So I ended up becoming an Italian tennis teacher. I had to learn Italian really quickly to try and teach these kids that spoke no English. And uh, most of the lesson I was just teaching in this weird mix of, you know, Spanish, Portuguese, and the few Italian words that I knew at the time, you know. But, but yeah, saved up enough in that month to kind of, get my stuff back, buy my stuff back. And then, and then I set off. Did any of the rest of the trip change or did you pretty much? uh, Well, yeah, the route had to change a little bit. You know, I thought I was going to walk from the Netherlands to Croatia and instead I was walking 
from Italy to Croatia, you know, so, or you know, Netherlands to Turkey, and then now it's going to be Italy to Turkey. So, so yeah, the route the route changed a little bit, but it wasn't. Yeah, I mean, we yeah, it wasn't the end of the world. And, right. Yeah, I was, I was able to adjust. After such an incredible event, right in the beginning of your trip, did you ever consider just turning around and going home, being like, "Look, this is a sign. I should just give up." And how do you get through that? Uh, it was. It was hard. Yeah, I was like I said, I was stressed before I left and then that happened, you know. So I was really stressed. Uh now I had so little money on this trip to start out, you know, I had I left home with I don't know, maybe like $5,000 or something, expecting to walk around the world with $5,000 just uh or 6,000. I can't even remember exactly how much was in the bank, but it was not it was not that much, you know. So I was just had I was just really stressed out, and then you know when this happened, I lost all my stuff. You know, I was like in a ho- in another financial hole. So, so yeah, it was a lot. Of, it was a lot of stuff, but I never thought I uh, really that I was not going to attempt to walk at least. You know, but there were times at the beginning of that trip where I was kind of like when I was in Croatia, where I was I, w- I did I wouldn't have minded if a car had just run me over and killed me because it was hard. I was like. I was, it was kind of torture for the first couple months. They were so hot. No one was helping me out. Uh, police were stopping me all the time. Um, you know, I had so, I, I was just, I passed out from lack of food and water at one point. I had to go to the hospital a couple times. Luckily, it was free hospital visits there. But, but basically, I just like, I was, I was so afraid to spend money because I had so little money that I wasn't buying hardly any food or water. And, you know, I was paying, paying the price for it. So you're just um, trying to push yourself too hard to conserve funds as much as you can. Yeah, exactly. So what was kind of the turning point in the trip that got you past that initial beginning part that was very tough? Well, when I got when I got to Turkey, you know, that was kind of that helped a lot cuz all of a sudden Turkey when I got there is people were way more helpful. They were they would give me more food and tea and stuff like that. Um and so that helped with the cost of the trip immensely you know and these people are they would they would give me a lot of food and that was a huge help um but then it also helped mentally too to feel like okay i'm making progress i'm out of europe i feel like i'm making some good progress um but yeah i mean it was it 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 just it was hard it was a long time you know before i could get to the end of the road really it was just yeah like i was i was just saying that you know there were there were countries that were stressful, like to like, like Kazakhstan was was even though the people were really helpful to me, it was still a, a stressful place before I got there and even while I was there, just because I didn't know what to expect. You know, I had no idea the distances between towns if I would be able to make it, um, or if the people would hate me because I was American, or you know, in Mongolia I wasn't sure if I was going to get lost because I didn't have a GPS, and you know, there's no there's some asphalt there but there's a plenty of non-asphalt and so so yeah there's a lot of questions that i wasn't sure exactly how i was gonna like what was gonna happen but i was just kind of you know just kind of winging it hoping i'd talk to the cyclists i'd talk to people i would meet and i would try to do as much research as possible but at some point you kind of just got to go there and find out if you can do it or not right yeah even if even if there's some countries you didn't have quite as good of an understanding for what would it be like, you would, you just kind of go and, and see what it's like and kind of adjust to what happens, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. Wow. I know you mentioned before that there were some times when you would get stopped by the police a lot uh, and ask questions. Did did you ever get arrested or did you ever have any problems with the authorities in different countries? Never got arrested, but definitely, you know, I was stopped all the time and I did. And I got I got taken into the police station in Azerbaijan once what for, nothing, for, for no reason. Nothing. Yeah. They were stupid, you know, had nothing to do. So they're just just being annoying. And and so then yeah, that happened. And then in China once too, I was taken into the police station there. Just because, you know, I was doing something different, walking. So they were just kind of stereotyping based on you being different and walking and... Yeah, that's how it always goes. Yeah, I mean, in the U.S., U.S. too, every week in the U.S., I'd be stopped. Like, cops would be like, oh, you might be a murderer, you might be a a rapist or whatever. And it's like, come on, man. Just because I'm walking? Really? Really? Yeah. Yeah. I guess. I mean, that's the society that we live in now. Like, uh, only, only crazy people don't drive yeah you're seen as a threat to society if you're doing anything different so how did you feel when you were very actively discriminated against just based on what you were doing and how you looked ah it sucked you know i hate it i hated it hey because you get i mean you get stared at all the time um and so that's stressful too you know it's like stressful to be constantly a target um by yeah the police or there are other people just staring at you all the time. You don't know, necessarily know what their intentions are. Um, usually it's great, you know, but but it can be, yeah, you know, it just feels, it doesn't feel great um, when you're constantly being stared at. Absolutely. Like Does with it, suspicion, with suspicion, you know. <laughs> right, just just because of how you look or. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, so it's, yeah, it wears you down. Do, did you ever feel kind of what were your emotional feelings as you were kind of being pointed out and as I guess as you felt like you were different from the rest of the group what were those feelings like uh man I hate I just like really I did not like I was not a big fan of the police or like authority or like not a bit I I really don't like the borders um so it was all that stuff just because, you know, they were, they were, those were the things that were my obstacles, really. It's like I was mostly I, – I was, I, I was confident I could do this on my own, you know. I was strong enough my body would, would, would handle it. But I wasn't sure if, like, the authorities would let me do it kind of. You know, I was always wow. worried too, that, that someone wasn't going to let me into their country to even attempt to walk across it. Or if the police would just – find me for camping illegally or you know sleeping somewhere i'm not supposed to sleep or did that ever happen no thankfully i mean i'm pretty good at stealth camping but <laughs> that's great. really good at it so what, are, you what are some of the I mean, navy seals seal team six seals seal team six couldn't find me that's awesome what are some of the kind of the pro tips for a stealth camping what would you look for <laughs> just uh trees uh, abandoned buildings you know generally it was trees i would sleep in abandoned buildings when i was in europe on the on the final three months of the walk and that was with other people because it's always you know you don't you got to worry a little bit if other people are going to be in the abandoned building with you you know so that's it's better to be with other people if you're going to do that and and that actually did happen one time in italy we slept in an abandoned building and it just so happened that there was another guy we found out the next morning who was not part of our group um so so yeah, but generally just trees, 
you know, bushes. That sort of protection from sight. Yeah, <laughs> and just go and go. You know, I gotta run, run off, run off the road when there's no cars. You know, when no one's watching, that's right. the goal. Yeah. So if no one sees you leave the road, no one sees where you're at, then you know, generally you're, you'll be okay. Then you're good to go. So. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of. I mean, I've met so many other cyclists that are just doing some really cool stealth camping. Like I met one guy who exclusively sleeps on top of McDonald's every night when he's traveling like by bicycle. McDonald's. Oh yeah, just gets on. A, yeah, sleeps on McDonald's every night. Gets the free Wi-Fi. Goes down, gets a griddle in the morning. He's 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 the coolest. It's hilarious. That's you know, great. it's Wait, great. So he he climbs up the ladder on the side of McDonald's and just sleeps on the top of the roof for yep for every McDonald's. Oh yeah, McDonald's? yeah. Did they know he was there? Oh, they've caught him a couple times. Yeah, that's no funny. problems though. Yeah, don't <laughs> forget. I mean, totally harmless. No one you know, no one's using that space in the middle of the night, right? So exactly. Yeah, that. Yeah, that he's got nowhere else to go. That's yeah, hilarious. so so that's a funny one. You know, I've met I've met people that like sleep in those like post offices, you know, the small towns that just have the door open, and then it's all PO boxes, right? So like they'll yeah. just go in there, and that if it's too cold or windy or something outside, they'll just sleep in that. Um, so you really just find whatever works and and go with it, right? Yeah, I mean, if you need a little shelter, there's there's a lot of you gotta be creative. Um, yeah. I gen yeah in general, like I just prefer that yeah to be like in woods, you know, where no one's gonna come across me ever that's my preference exactly yeah i would too i just don't want i don't want to scare i don't want to scare anyone um you know and i don't want them to scare me that sort of thing exactly well you mentioned in one of your videos that the most difficult part of traveling the world is the lack of a stable community and the the lack of people to ask questions that are deeper than just where you're from and and where you're going so what was it like to be so far removed from a stable community that you cared about it was hard. It was hard. I definitely, you know, I would think about my friends and family way more than they were thinking about me. I'm, I think, you know, I guess you can't say that for sure, but, but right. you know, for here, I, I, you know, like when you're in, when you're in the, in the grind of the rat race, um, you just so many distractions and there's so many things uh, going on, right? You got your internet, you got your phone, you got your Facebook, you got your, Twitter, you got news, 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 family updates, friend updates. So you're constantly being feeded this, these stimulants and these things that like that you're thinking about and being distracted by. Um, and then, but in my case, you know, I, I had none of that. So all I, how I had was my memories. So I'd just be thinking all the time about friends and family and memories of, of times past. And, um, yeah. And I, and I just, yeah, it was hard because people always would ask the same thing. Like, why don't you have someone with you? Right. You know, like, and it's not because I don't have friends. I do have friends, but it's just that none of my friends happen to want to do this for this length of time, you know, cause it's, it's a long commitment. You know, it's a lot of work without getting paid anything. So, well, Hey, I wish, I wish I had known you before you left. I totally would have joined you on that trip. <laughs> Easier said than done, man. I know, Easier said I know. than done. That's so true. I bet a lot of your friends say peop- that afterwards. Now. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of people that say, "Oh, yeah, they'll, I'll do, I'll do this or that." But you know, very, very few that actually come through and do it. You know, it's because there's just so many, there's so many excuses not to, so many reasons not to that it's hard. Uh, you know, it's hard. To get through it's that, hard for people yeah. to hard, yeah, to, to break through that kind of in. You know, you, you really have to be motivated um 
and think that you know that's the it's going to be the most fun way to spend a few years of your life exactly you know? which it's hard to do especially when there's so many days that are not fun at all you know it's right. a it's a roller coaster of of emotions and, and sensations well that segues really well into the final question that i want to ask you which is what advice would you give to someone who wants to add a bit more adventure to their life? My advice would be take a risk, I guess. Yeah, that's where the adventure comes from, I think, mostly. It's just the risk, you know, it's a, whether it's like a business adventure. Yeah, no risk, no reward. It says so on Passport. Even there's a quote from... Uh, <laughs> Thomas Jefferson, I believe, or someone else, it, it seems an inexorable right of nature that those who do not risk cannot succeed. You probably had a lot of time to read through all the different quotes. Yeah. Passport, right? <laughs> <laughs> Inex- awesome. Inexorable law of nature, perhaps it was. But yeah. Um, well, that's, yeah, uh, I think that's, I think that's the, that would be my advice, you know, to take a risk, do something you haven't done before. And, and you, and, you know, usually don't regret it. I think, one of the things that you said before really resonates well with that advice. Just the fact that, you know, a lot of people would easily say, of course I'd want to join you on a trip like that, but it's much easier said than done. Uh, And I think getting through all the reasons not to do something is very difficult. That's one of the things that I really admire about you and your story. The fact that you were able to push through so many reasons to stop so many reasons to give up and so many reasons to not do thing something, but your persistence uh, it's truly inspiring, and it's incredible to see the outcome of what you've been able to do as well. Thanks. Yeah, appreciate it. I mean, yeah, there's, I'm not the only one. There's a crap load of people out there that that do uh, amazing adventures all the time. So, and and you know, live and you know, are really persistent in other things too. So it's you know, but yeah, yeah, I, I think it is something that I'm pretty good at is sticking with things. I'd say so. <laughs> I'd say yeah. you're better better than most. thanks well hey thanks so much for being on this interview with us andrew it's been such an inspiration to hear your story and i can't wait for the next epic adventure keep us posted thanks man absolutely well hey thanks so much for joining us uh, joining us on the show and for everyone out there listening definitely go check out andrewsgreatadventure.com and all the awesome things that andrew is doing thanks again andrew it's been awesome thank you this podcast is brought to you by vestigo a peer-to-peer adventure sharing platform that lets people experience the best an area has to offer by connecting with the local professionals that both have the gear and the knowledge to facilitate incredible and unique outdoor experiences. People have even called it an Airbnb for outdoor guides. Recently, we talked to Tyler, a fan of Vestigo who has gone on four trips so far. Let's see here. So I guess the most memorable so far is uh, Mount Yona. It's my favorite spot. I've gone there with Vestigo and then actually I've gone there by myself a couple times afterwards because I loved it. Most memorable because I went rappelling off the side of a mountain for the first time. Do you think you would have gone rappelling if you were not on a Vestigo trip? I do not. No. Uh, maybe someday in the future. Uh, of course, just like anything else, you'd be like, yeah, I can get around to that. Vestigo allowed it to be like, let's do it. You want to do it? Here's when, here's where, you know, let's go. What would you say to someone that is on the fence about going on a trip? Go. Just go now. It's, uh, it's. You just can't beat it. You can't do it yourself. It's not like they're providing someone the motivation to do something that they could do themselves, but maybe don't. I mean, and and they can, but it's just 
there's nothing matched going in a group. I mean, if you want to go on vacation somewhere, whether you want to do some activity, like having the group of people makes it just makes it. And, uh, so, so going to do something for the first time with 10 to 15 other people who might also be doing it for the first time that maybe I know them, maybe I don't, we can kind of share our, you know, nerves or experiences or how awesome it was afterwards. Um, and then just going with someone that knowledgeable, um, you know, it's, it just all around, I enjoyed it so much that I've gone back three times since. Vestigo, an adventure sharing platform that provides people the knowledge, confidence, and safety to rappel off a cliff for the first time. To learn more about Vestigo, visit their website at vestigo.co, V-E-S-T-I-G-O dot C-O. When you sign up for your trip, use the promo code podcast and receive 10% off your first trip. Vestigo, find an adventure, book a trip, go.